You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. In the morning, as soon as the offices were open, he put in calls to the phone company, the gas, electric, and water, identifying himself as John Marchetti and ordering a stop service on all utilities at the house. He filed a change of address at the post office, then called American Express and Visa, the two cards he'd seen the bullhead flash, and claimed he'd lost his wallet and wanted replacement cards overnighted by FedEx. When the new cards arrived at the post office box he'd set up, he began to order things for delivery to 1236 Laurel. A new washer and dryer, an antique slate pool table that weighed over a thousand pounds, a pair of purebred Dalmatians, a deluxe 14-jet hot tub that could accommodate six people comfortably. That was just the beginning. He canceled Gina's cell, canceled their credit cards, went down to the bank and closed out their joint savings account. And Yan. He went after Yan, too, but in a more immediate way. A week later, after he'd closed the restaurant for the night and made the rounds of the bars, he found Yan's Nissan parked out front of his apartment and poured six plastic jugs of muriatic acid over the finish, then slashed the tires and took out the windshield for good measure. The night was cold, his breath steaming, the tire iron flashing under the street lamp like a sword of vengeance. And maybe somebody saw him there, or maybe it was the post office box. Maybe that was it. He never knew, really. In fact, he was still asleep when they came for him, and he never did remember his toothbrush. T.C. Boyle is the author of many books worth reading, from World's End to Drop City to The Inner Circle. His new novel is Talk Talk. Welcome to the program, Tom. Good to be back, Rick. Tom, to my mind, what you've written is nothing less than an economic horror novel. (laughs) You know, that's a good way of putting it. Uh, When I was doing the research for this, before I'd really had an idea of what I would be doing, I was getting horrified. And I thought it was a kind of horror novel. Maybe Stephen King should have written it, you know? (laughs) Well, it struck me that given that it was a horror novel, it had to have a monster. So I was thinking, and I'm a kind of guy who likes monsters. So I'm thinking, well, what kind of monster comes in a horror novel about identity theft, which is what this book is about? I was thinking, well, it's a doppelganger. And I was wondering, because I looked up doppelganger then and went and found that Edgar Allan Poe wrote a story called William Wilson. Good point. Wow, and you've we- done some <laughs> sly research there, my friend. Yes, of course. Our our villain, although he's a sympathetic villain, I should say, um, his given name is William Wilson, and it's from the Edgar Allan Poe story, which um, is about an alter ego or a doppelganger. Um, one William Wilson, whenever he is appearing in public and doing anything, the other William Wilson shows up to denounce him. So yes, it's a little... It's a little um, um, uh, trick that we novelists like to do to give a little bit of depth and a little joy to our readers when they discover that. Tell us a little bit about some of the research you did into identity theft. When I was just talking to the secretary downstairs, she told me her tale of having medical records stolen from her daughter-in-law. Yeah. Um, You know, I worry a lot, Rick. I worry about everything. I, I don't know how come. When I was a young guy, I didn't worry about anything. I was just an animal in nature. I saw that there was a civilization, and I did my best to destroy it. I mean, that's what you're supposed to do when you're a kid. Now, however, that I'm extremely elderly, um, 
I realize I'm the one who built the civilization and I have to keep it from falling down. And so I worry about everything. I worry about the fact that a third of the people in the world are starving to death. I worry about what does it mean when people are talking on cell phones? Where do those billions of minutes go to? I worry about everything. And I often address this in my short stories like uh, Tooth and Claw from last year. A lot of these stories are very contemporary, addressing contemporary issues. And so I thought perhaps that identity theft would be a story. But then I began to realize the horror and depth of what it is, and I began to do research and read all about identity theft, the horror stories of it, what happened to people, actual people like this secretary we just met a minute ago. Um, and the whole thing began to deepen for me and, and spread, but it was still just lying there as a kind of horror story um, until I began to go a little deeper and talk about why does this crime terrify us so much? Or why is it so horrifying? As opposed to, let's say, they stole your car. Yeah, that's really bad. But this is somehow touches something much deeper in us as to who we are. One of the things that strikes me is, frankly, I'd almost rather be dead than in the kind of debt that you can end up in if somebody steals your identity. And I, one of the things that you really evoke in this novel is the fear that underlies our fragile economic status. All of us are just walking on eggshells. We're one paycheck away almost. They're, most of us are about one paycheck away from ruin and being cast down into the next ec economic strata. Yeah, absolutely. Especially in a society that manipulates us so much toward buying product and then makes it easy for us to buy product with credit card solicitations. Um, I, by the way, have written to the clearinghouse where you don't want any more, you know, uh, junk mail of any kind. I think my junk mail has tripled as a result. You know, I mean, yeah, I mean, we're bombarded from from birth till death with ads. Everything is an ad. In fact, in my deeper meditations, I realized that what the purpose of life is. We have five senses, so we can hear, smell, touch, taste, and see ads. And the purpose of life is to buy product. You know, that's it. And so, of course, um, um, the whole thing is, is, is kind of teetering crazily because, you know, eventually we're going to run out of product. Eventually everything is going to be chewed up. Um, and people can get into tremendous debt. On the other hand, if it should happen to you, Rick, you can simply change your identity. Um, you could be, I don't know, George W. Bush, for instance. He's got plenty of money. Well, that's uh, the danger is that if we pursue the monster, we may become the monster. And one of the things that strikes me, the credit card companies have really set up a sweet deal for themselves. On one hand, they can fill your mailbox with advertisements for credit cards. And then if somebody steals those, those uh, advertisements, they can charge you for the product, and then they can charge you for a service to protect yourself from identity theft. Absolutely. One of the, still the foremost way of identity theft is just people stealing your mail. And they, they've hit a home run when they get a credit card solicitation sent to you that you don't even want. Um, my bank would send me checks. You know how they send you checks that you don't want? Yeah, I get those I all had, the time. I had to go to them four or five times and write to them and call them and so on and say, I don't want these checks because they, they could be compromised. They don't care. Uh, yes, they're losing plenty of money from identity theft, but they they take the chance. Obviously, they're making enough from from the people who do take these credit card solicitations to cover it. Like spam, for instance. Spam. Can you imagine? Um, 
maybe one out of a million people want the penile implant or the Viagra or whatever the hell it is, but there must be somebody or they wouldn't be sending it, right? You know? And I think the same thing is true with the credit card companies. I don't think they want to lose money, but it's, it's in their interest, obviously, to flood us with this stuff. Well, they're making money from asking us to protect ourselves from, from the potential losses that we could occur using their product. They've that we didn't even ways. ask for to begin with. <laughs> exactly. We didn't even ask for it. Yeah. No, it's it's really outrageous. And it goes down to um, our, our core identity, but also our privacy. And, you know, we're living in a uh, not a democracy so much anymore as just a corporation. You know, the president is the is a stiff of the corporation, basically. And we are it's almost like a banana republic with, with technology. You know, um, we're drones. We pay taxes and we buy stuff. That's what we're for. One of the things that interests me is let's talk a little bit about the crime fiction aspect of this because this is a toe-tapping piece of crime fiction, but it's not a whodunit exactly because we know pretty quickly whodunit. Mm-hmm. Because more... we have point of view. We have the point of view of the victim and of the bad guy, the victimizer. And the victimizer is this identity thief, William Wilson. Tell us a little bit about how you created this this character. He's actually, I found him to be initially, more sympathetic than I found the victim to be. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, back to, I had cut you off there about the uh, whodunit aspects. Um, you know, uh, my publisher is saying, well, this is a thriller. But, of course, I've never read any thrillers or any whodunits, and I don't really know what the conventions are, aside from, you know, having seen thriller movies and so on, and we see the setup. It's very black and white, always. There's good and there's bad. And, you know, it seems as if, in the films anyway, They've gone to preposterous lengths to make the bad guy so bad so that when he gets his comeuppance, we're all happy. But I don't follow those conventions, and I don't care about them. I'm a literary writer who wants to subvert convention and make something new. And so I fell in, and I was aware of it, I fell into the kind of um, trap that John Milton fell into when he did Paradise Lost, that Lucifer is so much more interesting than his counterpart, that the book is absorbed by the bad guy. Um I hope that I was able to balance it because Dana, too, the victim, isn't really a victim. I mean, she's the victim of the crime, but she doesn't have a victim's mentality. She is as hard-headed and tough, maybe tougher, than the criminal himself. And she is far from perfect. She has many flaws, uh, one of which is her insane, well, I would say insane, her rabid uh, a need to protect her own identity and to get vengeance on he who has taken it. Tell us a little bit. Let's talk about the the idea, the concept of identity, because it's really undergone a shift in the last, I'd say, maybe 20 years. It used to be our identity was based more on our actions, and, and people who knew us would know how we'd yeah. behave. And these days, it's our actions mean almost nothing. Our identity is the sum total of the information about us. Yeah, that's a great observation, Rick. And that's one of the things that I'm um, trying to grapple with here in this book about identity theft and the deeper implications of who we are. As you say, there was a time when we lived in villages and we knew everybody. We knew their grandfather. We knew what they'd done, whether they were good or bad, whether they were a bum or we could trust them. Um, as you say, now it's just information and actuarial tables, you know, and, and, and guesses. And um, it has to be because we have a global com- economy, we have a cashless economy, we're doing transactions over our internet, we're buying things here and there, and we really don't know whom we're dealing with ever. 
it, as a crime fiction, you say that you have ignored crime fiction, but one of the things you do that is within the realm of crime fiction is the your interest in the how done it. It's not the who done it. Mm. I mean, that that is the compelling here, but it's the how done it, the 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 nuts and bolts of how your character, uh, William Wilson, puts puts together these scams, and, and he goes from one to the next. And, and so tell us a little bit about, did you talk to any identity thieves yourself? No, I didn't. Uh, but, of course, I've talked to many people who have been on the opposite end of the stick, at like the secretary downstairs. Uh, practically everybody I talked to, from the inception of when I started this till till now, uh, has had it happen to them or their dog or their mother or somebody. I mean, it's so pervasive. Um, you know, I make it up. I invent things, but I do a lot of solid research first, and the ways in which the identities are stolen here and the scams are all true scams that have happened. Some of them would be prevented now because banks, for instance, uh, doctor's offices, many people are getting more hip to the threat. For instance, until, oh, three or four years ago, I would get four or five times a month at USC um, my students' record sheets with their Social Security numbers on them. A lot of professors would just throw them into the trash. I have been aware of this for many years. I would always shred them and, and, and so on. But people are becoming, making it a little harder for the thieves than even in the era of this book, which is, you know, two years ago when I wrote this book. Well, what's interesting, though, is that as one door closes, another opens. Last week on boingboing.net, somebody put a post about how uh, Sprint cell phone users could call up and give any valid Sprint phone number. And if you gave your Sprint phone number to the voice bot, it would go back and say, are you this name? And you'd, all you had to sit, do was reply to the prompts, yes. And with somebody's cell phone number, you could evoke a whole lot of really personal information about them. Now, they've closed that loophole. But there are many more. But there are many more, and they open up every day. Again, I, I do believe, and so do all the guys who are writing about identity theft. Uh, we have to go to... Uh, a retinal scan, I think, for all transactions, even over the Internet. And I think that will happen in the near future. Because, yes, while the credit cards companies are serving their own interests in bombarding us with this stuff, they're still losing billions of dollars to theft. So if there were an um, incontrovertible way of knowing who you are at any distance, coming into our airport, uh, in a transaction of a business over the computer, um, I think it would eliminate a lot of the theft. So, And you think the retinal scan couldn't, I guess... Uh, you'd have to go to the eyeball on the shoulder trick from Blade Runner. To, uh, <laughs> I believe to it is very that. difficult to subvert. Um, the problem is, if anyone were the victim of identity theft using only retinal scans, then what do you do next? You would never be yourself anymore. You would never be trusted anywhere. But you know, again, if we have the technology in the supermarkets to scan a, a can of peas and know that it's cost thirty-three cents, it makes absolute sense to just scan each customer. And again. You know, I'm not advocating this. I'm just saying what's going to happen um, because there are not only issues of your identity but issues of privacy, and we're living in a society that is less and less private because we are consumers. We are tools of the trade, you know. Um, the grocery store uh, card that I have because I save lots of money, It knows they know exactly what I buy and what I might want and how to target me with ads and so on and so on. Of course, I am a kind of an odd consumer in that I don't want anything and I hate anybody to try to sell me something. 
I was in New York the other day on my tour, and I was walking. I always walk in, in cities to, to get a sense of them and also to get the exercise. And where my hotel is, it's near the Diamond District. And I'm just walking randomly, and there's a guy. Stand, bark, they have barkers on the street to sell you the diamonds. And one guy said to me, buy one, get one free. I just kept walking. But what I wanted to say to him is, man, if you were giving them away in buckets, I don't want them. <laughs> there's nothing I want. Come on. You know, I'm a real hard sell. <laughs> because I think more deeply about these things. And furthermore, I married my wife. I don't even call her my wife. She's my chief purchaser. She buys everything all the time. She, that's how she gets off on life. That's her joy, you know, to buy crap. I'm actually the uh, purchasing agent in our house. Ah, so an admission <laughs> they, is made. Yes. I did a story a few years ago called Filthy with Things about a couple who are so obsessed with collecting things that they can barely get into their house. They have little trails through the, through the crap in the house, and they have to hire a professional organizer. We had, that, those, that was our neighbors. Really? Two doors down. They, their house was so crowded with newspapers and with stuff they'd collected, it actually spontaneously burst into flame a few months ago in their garage. Oh, no, and all the rats probably got killed. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was a real tragedy for the rat population. <laughs> No, I feel bad for those people. There's a, there's a real sickness there. A better kind of coupling is like what we have. I am very seer and, and spartan, and she is the collector, and so we, we strike a balance. For instance, here this is true love and a, and a great relationship. On the Sunday newspaper, she takes all of those coupons and carefully clips them out, and then when she goes, uh, leaves the room, I throw them away. <laughs> <laughs> I recycle them. You recycle them. I recycle yes. them. Good. Good. I'm making sure, of course, they don't have any personal information on them. Well, um, not only do I shred the mail, but I then burn it in the fireplace. Do you really burn the mail? You really burn the shredded mail? Yep. Uh, recently, another thing that one of the Boing Boing uh, correspondents did was to take one of the things that they'd uh, a credit card offer they'd been sent. They ripped it into pieces. Then they taped those pieces back wow. together. Oh, now you're scaring me. <laughs> and, they, and they sent it in, and they got the credit card. We should shut the lights off in the studio. This is a horror story. <laughs> this is a horror it, story. Before any of this started in, and it must be 10, 15 years ago, a similar thing happened. Um, a t TV or news reporter went to the bank and everybody throws away their slips, you know, when they do a transaction, just throws it away. He just picked up one up at random. He contacted the person and said, would it be all right if we try to see what will happen with this? Went into the bank with this number and got checks for it and then wrote out checks. And they were all, no one even looked at them. And they, and they got increasingly bold and they started to write out checks in, and sign Mickey Mouse on the bottom. And so no one noticed. You know? <laughs> Boy, it's, it's really amazing. Now... Your novel features two fantastic characters. It's really an Ahab and Moby Dick relationship between the two, or Frankenstein and his monster. And I think Frankenstein and his monster is maybe the more correct, um, more apropos comparison because your monster is so sympathetic. He, he really – one of the things that, that struck me is that he writ the, the most powerful ties in here are the ties of family. And he's really, it's that, the ties of family that really affect this monster, don't they? Absolutely. Um, you're talking of a monster in a theoretical way, like a Frankenstein monster. Many people would call him a monster in, in terms of his morals. But since we see his point of view, 
we become sympathetic with him to a degree. He has a narcissistic personality, uh, like many sociopaths, and all novelists, of course. Um, and he doesn't really see that other people have needs or wants. They are only part of his scheme. I've written about characters like this before, Dr. Kinsey of the Inner Circle and uh, Dr. Kellogg of, of The Road to Wellville. These are people who are single-minded in what they want, and everyone else serves them. You know? And um, It's the personality as a black hole. Yeah. As an event horizon that nothing, information comes in, it doesn't go out. They don't see anything outside it. I like this. I like this metaphor. Very good, right? (laughs) Yeah. Um, And so he is unsympathetic in that way when we see through him, but we're getting his point of view. And he doesn't really think of himself as a bad guy. He thinks of himself as a manipulator, as a cool guy who can manipulate the system to his benefit. He considers what he's doing a victimless crime. Uh, Nobody gets hurt. The insurance companies pay for the losses. Why shouldn't he be a shark in the water and take advantage of what he can get? And he lives a great life. He lives in a nice condo in Mill Valley. He's got uh, a Mercedes in the car, in the garage. He's, uh, he wears Armani jackets. He goes out for nice dinners. He cooks for his Russian girlfriend. He's a, he's a smooth operator. And he really doesn't stop to think that what he's doing is illegal. He doesn't care. It's his due. It's owed to him. The consumer society owes you something, you know? If if every ad you see says that you can't be as good as the next guy because you don't have the right Palm Pilot or whatever the hell it is, then at some point some people will say, well, all right, but I'm not going to work for it. It's my due, and I'll take it. And that is who William Peck Wilson is. It's very interesting because one of the things I thought about this novel was a great comment on the affluent... Uh, consumer society we live in. Because as you say, everybody really feels it's their due to live at the absolute top of the ladder. They Anything that's beneath them, that where most people live actually, just seems like I, I don't have to do that. Sure. I mean, I, I dealt with this also in Drop City uh, in 2003, my novel about the hippies, 1970. Uh, going back to the land, living sustainably, is that possible? Was that just a pipe dream? Well, when you consider that there are 6.2 billion people on Earth, of course it's a pipe dream. Of course it's not sustainable. We are rushing headlong to the extinction of our species and the destruction of everything that makes us go. Soon there won't be anything to eat. You know, truly, the planet is finite. And so um, consumerism and the cracks in it that allow for identity theft and for people to rip you off is just symptomatic of it. I have no solutions. In fact, I have nothing uh, nothing but um, um, the deepest regrets when I think about it. I'd like to talk about the concept of identity in this novel a little further. One of the things that interested me is the idea of credit as your as a new form of identity. You know, it, it's it's everywhere. And it's a means of diverting us from the reality of our situation, isn't it? Sure. If you have infinite credit, you know, no refusamos credito, you know, everybody can have the dream until the bills come due. However, if you're living under somebody else's identity, the bills never come due. We should say, too, that what interests me more here than the simple credit card ripoff that so many of us have experienced is identity takeover in which a thief will live as you in some other place and pay the bills so as not to be detected. Why would someone do this? Well, 
in the case of William Peck Wilson, my fictional creation, as in the case of most of these identity takeovers, his own identity is compromised. William Peck Wilson, as you see, yes, he's a family man. He loved his daughter, but he got divorced. He went to prison for assaulting his ex-wife's boyfriend. Uh, his business went bankrupt. Uh, he doesn't have a whole lot of education or skills. Um, he's in debt. So what better than to become someone else? And in this case, Dana Halter. He doesn't even know she's a woman. Dana could be a man's or a woman's name. Furthermore, she's a Ph.D., so she has a doctor appended to his, her name. He's living the high life. Uh, he loves the fact that people call him doctor, and he lets them think that he's a medical doctor because that is the ultimate, you know. One thing that that I found interesting, too, is the aspect of her hearing she's deaf. Yes. So yes. tell us a little bit. Part of her, that's a core part of her identity, and you get a uh, play a little bit with the uh, controversy about cochlear implants. So yes, tell us a little course, bit about that. Of course. Um, again, uh, uh, Rick, I was absorbing this material, being suitably horrified, thinking, is this going to be a horror novel, you know? Um, and wondering, though, what does it mean more deeply in terms of identity? How do you know who you are beyond the village? You have to grow up to, to live in the village. You know who you are because you've been acculturated and you learn language. We are our language. That's how we think. We think in a re reactive way. So I love to be in nature where you're, you're cutting off the language part of your brain. But mostly we are thinking in language. I translate things into language in my own mind. I talk to myself. Language is who we are. That's how we know who we are. We have an inner voice and it speaks in language. So while I was meditating on this, I happened to go to my dentist. And you'll notice that the dentist is featured in the first chapter. Um, and he happened to have gotten divorced recently, and so he had a real eye out for the ladies. And he said to me, there was a gorgeous woman sitting in the chair before you, and my God, she was deaf. But as soon as he said that, of course, then he brought out the, the hammer and the drill and the rest of it, I began to realize this would be something interesting to pursue because the deaf are totally alien to our culture, any hearing culture anywhere in the world, because they have a different culture, and it's based on a different language. Our language, no matter whether you uh, come from South Africa or you come from Norway, it is based on hearing. It's an auditory language. Their language is a visuospatial language, which the best I can imagine um, it, it is, is sort of a, a kind of language that paints a picture uh, rather than tells a story. So that for us, when we tell a joke, we are waiting for the, the, the payoff of, of the punchline. The deaf, when they tell us a, a joke, they don't really care about the punchline as much as we do. They care about the beauty of visualizing the story. Who is where? What does it look like? So it's a different kind of identity from a linguistic identity that we have, a different linguistic identity. Once I discovered this, I began to research deaf culture and realized that if my heroine were to be deaf, then she would have a reason, a different identity, and also a reason to protect it more even more fervently than we would protect ours. And it opened the whole book up to me. And that's an interesting observation about language because the, the creation of, of, of the written language is, is really one of the things that, that separates us from the culture before us. It's what uh, some, some writers have called a, a singularity, where there, nothing after is the same. And those before and those after are almost different species. 
Absolutely. And don't forget, before we had written language, we had a spoken uh, language like the Eddas, the Norse Eddas, or the Mabinogion, or the, uh, the uh, Cuhullin Tales of Ireland. Um, this is how come poetry was our first literature, it, it, rhyming poetry, because the rhymes were a mnemonic device so that the skald, for instance, in, in, the, in the Norse mythology, could tell the story in those long winters in the huts of their whole race. So it would be a creation story. It would be a history of who. That's why it's always the, you know, Harold, the son of Harold uh, with, the, with the twisted back, you know, uh, to identify these people through generations, but through a spoken language with a mnemonic device, which is rhyming. Um, once written language came in shortly thereafter, I'm not sure of the year, but it's the Norse were still presenting their oral tradition in uh, 1100, you know, uh, A.D. Soon after, we had written language, and that was not as necessary anymore because we could store information. One of the things that that's fascinating about the the life of the deaf is is you talk a little bit about some of the statistics about the interactions between the deaf and the hearing. In that the the marriage statistics. Yeah, and you also mentioned cochlear implants. Uh, I got a lot of this information from books about the deaf. Harlan Lane is a wonderful writer on this subject. Oliver Sacks' Seeing Voices is very good, too. And in many deaf people who could possibly have an improvement by having cochlear implants to help uh, pick up signals that their auditory nerves uh, have been, their auditory nerves have been damaged and they can't do that, will refuse to even be tested, as my heroine, Dana, refuses even to be tested as a child because she would lose her special identity and not be part of this culture anymore if she were to have those implants. Um, further, another story that I tell in here, uh, Dana tells Bridger um, that 90% uh, of deaf people marry other deaf people. The 10% who don't, there's a 90% divorce rate because the two cultures are so different. Um, and in it, she tells him a story of two deaf friends who the woman became pregnant, and they went to the hospital, and they were very nervous. What's it going to be? What's it going to be like? And when the baby was born, they both rushed in and clapped their hands, and the baby didn't respond, and they said, thank God, she's one of us. That's really a fascinating story. This novel also evokes a deep sense of dislocation. There's a, People seem... That, alienated from their environment. There's a great scene, the scene at the beginning when your main character is thrown into jail is a pretty good example of this, where she's just cut off from the life that, that she knew before. And, and so tell us, actually, one thing I did want to ask is, did, did you talk to anybody who had to go through that kind of going to jail experience? That's really frightening and very well rendered. Well, thank you so much, Rick. Um, I should just say, for those who haven't read the book, that it begins with Dana Holter, my heroine, she teaches in a deaf school. She has a Ph.D. She's very independent and, uh, and, and brilliant. She's on her way to the dentist. Of course, I had to work the dentist in as a tribute to him. Um, and she's a little scattered. She's running late. And she doesn't stop at a four-way stop. There's nobody there. But as sometimes happens, the police have been watching this, this particular four-way stop, and they pull her over. And they do the standard check of her ID, and they come back with their... The cop comes back with his gun drawn, and she... It's Friday, of course. These things always happen on Friday. And she spends the weekend in jail because the other identity, the one of Peck Wilson, has bled into hers. 
and she is wanted for several crimes and walking out on warrants and so on and so on. And so, yes, there is a tremendous sense of dislocation. She is removed from society altogether, and because of the difficulty of communication, uh, she doesn't even know what she's charged with at first until an interpreter for the deaf tells her, and he believes that she has really done it because there is, there is the rap sheet, you know, right in front of her. You also evoke this kind of sense of dislocation in terms of the, the road trip. Once you embark, your characters embark on a, on a road trip, they're re- they've really cut off. We, we have, we're all used to having our everyday lives. We get up, we say hello, we go to work, we come home, we have dinner. It's a very nice routine. And, and when, they, when you're forced onto a, into a road trip, it's very dislocating, isn't it? Absolutely. But you know what? I'm drifting here, and I didn't answer your question about going to jail. Oh. No, I didn't speak to anyone specifically who had been to jail, but I know about it, and I won't tell you how. (laughs) (laughs) And so I was using that and my imagination. Now, uh, as far as the dislocation of the road trip, that's another great observation. Um, I love a routine. I know that I'm having a good life, not necessarily when I'm here talking to brilliant men in a studio, which I enjoy doing, but when I have the time in my life to work then maybe go out and uh, take a walk, do something physical, to go to the store, buy stuff, make dinner, read a book, etc. That is the kind of life that locates us. But um, in the exigency here of Dana having her identity stolen and finding out who did it and wanting vengeance, because, of course, the police don't bother with these things. They're considered a victimless crime. Um, She takes her and her boyfriend, Bridger, off on a quest. It also dislocates Peck Wilson, who is, who perhaps loves his new identity too much. He knows better. He knows. He's a con man. He knows better. But he likes this identity and he's established for himself and should have left it earlier and gotten a new one, but he doesn't, and he's caught. And uh, a cross-country chase ensues. One thing that interests me that you talked about <coughs> was the 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 love angle there's a there's a really nice look at relationships in this book so tell us a little bit about how you created that and how you bring that through you do a really nice job at it i experienced love once <laughs> many many years ago and i'm still working on that you know i think my dog loves me you know i can i can work Dogs on that dogs do too. love us don't they oh god well um yes this has to do with relationships because relationships are part of how we identify ourselves. We identify ourselves through language, but of course through how other people know us, our intimates, especially. Uh, that's, it's a tribal thing. It'll go back forever. There's, no one can take this away from us, no matter how much we are just ciphers in an, in an economic situation. Um, especially your kids. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. That's, that's true. Um, um, uh, we have a genetic uh, identity as well. But in this case, uh, I'm was able to play with the notion of identity on many levels. I should say a little bit about this relationship between Bridger and Dana. He has broken up with a girlfriend. He hasn't had a girlfriend for a while, and he's at one of the clubs on State Street in San Roque, a little stand-in for my hometown, Santa Barbara. And um, it's a club where you can stand on the street, and there's no glass or window. It's just open, and you can see who's in there in case you want to pay the cover charge. And he sees this woman dancing in an odd way, right up against the speaker, almost arrhythmically, as if she's hearing a different music. She's kind of attractive. She's around his... He's 28, she's 33. 
And he decides to go in the club, and he begins to dance with her and to tr communicate with her. But, of course, in a club, everybody's deaf, and he doesn't realize that she's deaf. Um, and subsequently, they have a relationship, and uh, she tells him the grim statistics, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But the test of the relationship is, will he possibly lose his job? He has to leave his job in order to go on this quest with her, and he does it for her. And their relationship is played out against this um, uh, pursuit. Uh, what will he give up for her? What will she give up for him? And how will it turn out, finally? Uh, on the other hand, we have Beck Wilson, who loves Natalia, his Russian girlfriend, who has a daughter who is, again, if you're talking of doppelgangers, he loved his own daughter, whom he will never be able to see again because he's left New York and gone to California, and uh, he's pursued by... He would be pursued by the police if he were to be found. And so he loves her, too. And there's a, another relationship going on there as well. When we talk about the forms of monster in this book, there's also certainly quite a bit of a vampire in the identity thief and also a shapeshifter. I, did you think of the, any of these things consciously when you were writing, or did they, did they just... I think the best way that themes emerge is in an unconscious way. And, of course, to suck out the identity from someone, I suppose there's a kind of uh, notion of a vampire living off of somebody, a parasite, of course, a shapeshifter, because he is somebody else. And he shifts his identities. He doesn't, he keep, he's a doppelganger. When we meet him, he's a doppelganger for Dana, but he then starts taking on other identities. Oh, of course. And, and back to the relationship thing. Uh, Natalia loves him for who he is. He's handsome. He's dynamic. He knows things. He's a doctor. Uh, he wears beautiful clothing. He cooks her beautiful meals. But when she discovers that that's not his true identity, she's pretty disappointed. And it, it begs the question as to whether um, you're loved for yourself or for other factors as well that um, are extraneous to who you are in your heart. And furthermore, since Peck confuses his identity so much, I think eventually he doesn't really know who he is and, and on any core level and loses all sense of identity finally. One of the things that he, he does get bits of his identity, and this is an interesting notion that you bring up, from his experience in jail. That's where he it really comes from, isn't it? Yes, and um, again, I love to play these little literary tricks with my fans. Um, the hardcore fans will know that his cellmate, Jeffrey Sandman, who is an extremely savvy, bright... Um, eco-freak, but also, unfortunately, a criminal, was also the cellmate in a different year, in a different situation, of Tyrone Tearwater, the hero of A Friend of the Earth, who in the 80s was an eco-terrorist and was jailed in a 2000, the year 2000 with Jeffrey Sandman. So he's bounced around a little bit, and he educates uh, Tearwater about the environment, and he also educates, in this book, uh, Peck Wilson, William Peck Wilson, uh, with regard to how you do it, how you go about compromising people's identities. And by the way, when Peck is released from jail uh, with his um, gate fee that they give you when you leave, he goes, uh, takes a cab, goes directly to a part of town where there are doctor's offices, goes through the trash bins until he has found what he needs, which is information, uh, and then goes to... Um, uh, a person he knows who will create um, a driver's license for him 
and he gets this, and is off, off on his adventures. It's just that simple. And by the way, speaking of the great security we have in our country at our borders now, I have a friend who works in a bar where, that I frequent. He's a guy in his 50s. He's a very cool-looking guy. He's got long hair, and he's just a mellow, sweet guy. And he's got a kind of British or Canadian accent. And he told me this. He told me that he'd had some problems in this country in the past, and he doesn't have a green card. And so he hadn't left the country in 30 years, being afraid of being caught at the border. But he had to go to Canada. It cost him $25 to get a driver's license in somebody else's name. They didn't even look at it twice. And when he came back, by the way, I said, but you're not going to start strapping bombs to yourself, are you? And he said, no, no, no. <laughs> well, that's reassuring. Yeah, it's pretty easy to manipulate these things. Again, that's why we're going to go to biometrics eventually. It interests me as well that you mentioned the movies in here. People perceive themselves sometimes as being characters in movies and also characters in novels. Dana thinks yes. of herself as being in a novel at one point. There's a really great point. And you create some great prose effects where your the reader's reaction to what the characters are saying mirrors the character's reaction, and it's really enjoyable. Well, thank you. Um, I should say, again, for those who haven't read the book, that uh, Dana is writing a novel of her own, and it's called Wild Child. And you see her writing it, and you understand what it is about, and it gives another level to the idea of language and identity and communication. It's about the wild child of Everon, and we have the movie connection because Truffaut had made a movie called L'Enfant Sauvage in 1970 or so about this very subject. And in short, it's a, it's a story in which, uh, a true story, in which... Um, um, a feral child was found in Napoleonic France around 1798 or so. He was guessed to be 11 or 12. He had a slash in his throat. He'd been abandoned, obviously, for dead in the woods by his parents or someone who could no longer support him. But he lived as a feral child. And Dana is writing this novel. Um, the, the amazing thing about it is that he was never able to acquire language because he'd passed that window of opportunity in which you can acquire language. Um, in the original of this novel, there was an appendix, and the appendix was the full text of Wild Child at 66 pages, Dana's book. My editor convinced me to remove it because he felt that people would not be interested because it's so different in style. I felt they would. So I published it in McSweeney's. It's in this current McSweeney's, and Oh, On this great. tour in bookstores, people are waving these McSweeney's. I think McSweeney's is probably selling out because people want to read Dana's novel as well. Um, and I had a wonderful little Borgesian joke because when it came in McSweeney's, I had an author's note. You know, though my name is, is appended here as the author, really, you can see that it was Dana Halter who knows much more about language and identity than I do. And then there's the movie aspect, uh, as you suggest. We like to identify with characters in movies and novels. It gives us a new identity. What novelists do is create identities. It all seems to flow together. And I also hit upon um, uh, another image that, that, that deepens this in, in Bridger's profession. He works in special effects, in a special effects studio. And he works in paint and roto specifically, where he is painting out the wires that would hold up the stuntman. And also doing head replacements where when you see some uh, action hero on his flaming motorcycle leaping over gorges, well, that's the stuntman. But it's so much easier today because of 
computer graphics to uh, and computer effects to um, take the head of that hero and superimpose it frame by frame over what they call the white helmet. There's just a blur of the face and to create a new identity altogether. So all of this um, began to blend together for me and deepen the effect of the book. On the surface, yes, it's very thrilling. There's a chase. Are they going to catch him? Are they not? What's going to happen? Um, but under the surface, I think it allows readers to think about their own identities and what it means to us to be recognized and who we are. I mean, there's 6.2 billion people on the earth. Um, we want to be recognized. We want to be individuals. Who are all those people? <laughs> where, are, where are they? I'm glad they're not coming to my house. A lot of them are on the freeway, I think. And <laughs> Yeah, I do get a little impatient with them uh, because, you know, these strangers on the freeway, they're not sufficiently attentive to my needs. Absolutely. They're course, always in front of us. They can redeem themselves by buying my book. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> now, this book has been optioned for the movies. Indeed, yes. And As many of my books have. But this one um, is the only time I've had one optioned before the book came out. Really? And I noticed that uh, somewhere in this, in this book, you, a name of one of my favorite directors comes up, David Fincher. So has he been attached yet? I can see it'd be a... No, this was a deal with Universal Pictures with a director attached, and the director is Gary Flitter. Okay. And he's done some great stuff in the past with big-name actors. I think the key to making this into a movie, and by the way, I have nothing to do with movies. I'm just talking the way that anybody would talk about actors in movies. I will never write a movie. I will not participate. That's that's <laughs> nothing I will ever do because I have a whole other life. Nonetheless, I think um, the actress who will play... Uh, the main role of Dana, I think, will be the key to this because um, she has to be a great sort of method actress who would want to play a deaf person in a new way. You know, always, and Dana mentions this in the book, always in our past representations in films with deaf actresses, they're really hearing actresses who can read everybody's lips and they're kind of sweet and fair victims and people have to take care of them. This is not the case here. This is more the reality. The deaf are just potent as we are, and they can do what they want, and so can she. Um, she's not limited in any way. Uh, lip readers can only read 30% of what's going on. It's context in our world, and our world is difficult for them. And I think this would be a great role for a young actress. I mean, Dana's 33. So I think that would be the key, and I think if he's able... He's, they're writing the script now. If he's able to get someone to anchor that, the rest will unfold. And of course, Peck's role. You would die for Peck's role if you're a young actor. Oh, yeah. You know, he's absolutely. tough. He's cool. He's good looking. He has a beautiful Russian girlfriend who, unfortunately, is a little too expensive. But nonetheless, it's a, it, I think it would make a, a, a good one. The ending, though, and we, we won't give it away, but the ending isn't what you'd expect. It's certainly not the ending of a thriller, and you know, the, the, the big red thriller in which everybody has a punch out. I mean, I would never give you that. I have to do something to surprise you. And I think you will be surprised. Um, and I hope that uh, the scriptwriter and director will respect that to give us something different. You know, how many thrillers do we have to see already before we get sick of them? If they're so formulaic, this is not. This is something very different. This is indeed very different. And I think, as you say, one of the keys is Dana. And, and she's, I'd like to explore this character a little bit. She's not very nice. I mean, she, she's <laughs> not correct. very considerate. She's That's kind of inconsiderate. Mm -hmm. And I thought you did a really good job of creating a tension, a pull and a push between Dana and Peck. 
when one's likable, the other one's unlikable. Did did you balance that as a as a writer? Or did that just that just flowed from your pen? Everything just flows, and if I'm doing, if I'm working well, then it comes together in these ways. You can't impose this kind of thing on a text uh, like the um, the symbology of what's going on here, the depth of it. It just has to happen. I, I think it's hard for people who don't write to understand this, that there is a flow. There, are, there is a way of the unconscious mind creating these things. But of course, consciously, uh, you control it. And consciously, I do not want to create a, a heroine who is a pure victim and needs to be rescued and is the sweetest woman in the world and a villain who is purely evil and needs his comeuppance. The world isn't like that. I, of course, am a saint, but most people are are a mixture of the two. And temptations, who knows what we could do when temptations arise? I pursue this a lot in my work. Um, the Tortilla Curtain, for instance. Uh, Delaney Mossbacher, the hero of that book, he's a liberal. He's a nice guy. We like him. He's an ecologist. In a moment of crisis, he behaves reprehensibly. I might, too. I hope I wouldn't. I hope I would be more heroic and more moral. But you don't know. And I think everybody is like that. We are self-serving to a degree. Everybody is not purely likable. And I think it makes for a much uh, better read if the characters um, have different poles within themselves. I'm also interested in this notion of victimless crime. When you talk about this in the book, it's one of the most frightening aspects is the complete indifference of law enforcement to the victims of this crime. And, and as a, again, as a crime thriller, what makes this very interesting is that it's as much about the victim as it is about the perpetrator and the catch for the perpetrator, trying to catch the perpetrator. So tell us a little bit about how law enforcement treats these the people who have had their identity stolen. Well, law enforcement is getting more hip to it and again because it's costing so much in society and people are beginning to realize that this is far from a victimless crime because of the morass of debt and problems uh, which the victim has to deal with um, <laughs> okay I won't I was going to tell you a personal story but it will only invite abuse go from ahead the listeners nope <laughs> I'm not going to tell you um, it is true, however, that uh, as as the victim's rights woman uh, tells Dana and Bridger, the police have more serious things to deal with. You know, uh, child molesters, uh, murderers, um, uh, rapists, uh, and and this is a low priority. It's pretty much has been left for the victim to sort it out. Now things are changing because it's so pervasive a crime and so devastating to you psychologically as well as financially and as well as in terms of just the hassle. You know, my life is so complicated. I don't want hassles. I want that life you were describing earlier where you have a routine. It's enough just to stay alive without extra hassles burdening you or parasites trying to drain your blood. When did you, how did you prepare for this book? Did you do the research first? Of course. Uh, any novel I do, I, I research first. I take mountains of notes. I uh, wander around thinking about things. I'm, I'm always ill at ease, though, because I don't feel good unless I'm actually creating something. Um, in the process of doing that, as everyone listening has had the experience of doing a similar thing, 
uh, in many different walks, but specifically in writing, everyone's written papers, term papers and whatnot. It's the same thing. You collect information, and somehow while you're collecting it, you begin to have an idea of what you might be writing about and how it might begin. So too with a novel. Once it begins, though, it may go in unforeseen directions, and you may have to acquire some new information. And by the way, I love the Internet for giving information. It was what hooked me first on it, and it was probably sometime in the mid-90s. I was writing a short story about the most boring man in the world. And, you know, I had met this guy, but, you know, and he's the guy who will come to your house and he, in a droning voice would tell you about playing golf that day, which in itself, I'm sorry, folks, is the most boring thing I could imagine. And then he would tell you every hole and every shot. And you, you could set his hair on fire. You could, you could do anything. And he will go, you know, all right, so I'm the, the most boring guy in the world. And I'm thinking, what else would he talk about? Well, boring people love to talk about technical things and buying technical things. This guy was going to talk about chainsaws. He's thinking about buying a chainsaw. I don't know a damn thing about chainsaws. Within a minute, on the Internet, I had specs. I had choices of all these different kinds, and now I am hooked on that information highway. It's designed specifically to help novelists with those little things that we formerly had to jot down on a dirty envelope and go to the library and look through a million books before we could find out what it was all about. <laughs> well, what are you researching on the Internet information highway now? I can't tell you. I, I know I'm being secretive today. Um, I'm writing a new novel. Uh, you know, I always balance between a contemporary and an historical setting. And I'm writing a novel about another great egomaniac of the 20th century along the lines of McCormick and Kellogg and Kinsey, a kind of Peck Wilson guy, con man kind of guy who is famous and great. And I'm examining his life which is very fascinating. And soon, I will reveal to everyone who that person is. But for right now, my agent has asked me not to reveal that. And I respect him. I love him. He's been my agent since I was in college. Well, we can understand the uh, inclination not to divulge any personal information. <laughs> given the... But always before, as you know me, I've always blabbed about what I'm working on. I can't help it. Um, but this one time, I have to remain silent for a little while yet. Um, and then you'll see why. Well, we'll be paying great attention. We've been speaking with T.C. Boyle. His new book is Talk, Talk. Thanks for speaking with us, Tom. Our pleasure as always, Rick. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony.